Awesome. Awesome. I saw this when we were worshiping. Um, and I'm just going to go ahead and forewarn y'all. This is going to be a danger zone over here. Y'all are right up in my grill. I was practicing earlier and I was walking all the way over here. And I was like up on this. Well, I wasn't actually on it, but I was like in this area. And now y'all are here. So if I start popping up like this, it just means I'm getting real fired up. Don't get scared or anything. All right. Y'all are in the, there you go. Just make some room for me. Hey guys, how are y'all doing? You good? You good? You good? Hey, would y'all just pray with me before we get into anything tonight? God, Lord, we thank you so much for being here. God, we thank you that you have given us the opportunity, Lord, to meet and to worship you, God, and to learn more, more about you, God. I pray tonight that you would speak through my inability and my brokenness, God, and let the message that you've put on my heart get across to everyone in this room. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you would, open up your Bibles to James, the book of James. While I turn there, I have a question for you. How many of y'all have siblings? Anybody have siblings in here? Anybody have siblings? Yeah. Hello. Everyone's got siblings. If you have half siblings, still siblings. It counts. So let me ask you a question. If those of you who have siblings, do you all, would, would it be fair to say that you know more about your siblings than maybe other people do? You, you don't? I, you think you maybe know a little more about them than the, than the common public might know about them. And as a part of that, you might also have some embarrassing stories about them. Oh, yeah. Well, I have an embarrassing story about my little brother that I would like to share with you all tonight, if I can. Okay. So back when I was in high school, uh, back when I was in high school, uh, over the summers, my parents didn't really like for my brother and I just to stay home and to not really do anything. They didn't want us to stay home and just sit around all day and watch television. So they would give us chores to do. And anybody happen? Anybody parents just give you chores to do, leave you with chores? Yeah, it's, it's horrible. So one day, my dad left us this. He said, you know, going to work, I need you all to clean the whole house. Which I never liked because I can deal with cleaning my area, but my parents made me clean their, their room. That's weird, if I might say so myself. Like, I'm like dusting my parents' dresser. I'm like, I don't even contribute to this mess. This literally has nothing to do with me. But anyway, so my dad, you know, gave my brother and I, okay, this is what you're supposed to do. You're going to clean your room and you need to get that done. Well, here's the deal. My brother and I had a tendency to put off our chores to the last possible minute because we like to have fun, right? So we woke up, rolled out of bed about 10 a.m. It's summer. We're not in any hurry. And roll downstairs. And I noticed that we have airsoft guns. And I was like, huh, airsoft guns, huh? We had two of them. So we thought, hey, why don't we have a little airsoft war? We'll have a little, we'll have a little airsoft war in the house today. No big deal. We're cleaning it afterwards. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. So I, as the smarter and more mature and wiser one, took the upstairs. So I had higher position. If you, see, if you know anything about Gettysburg, that's how the North won. Um, and, and, and so, so I, I took the higher position. Well, my brother, in order to be able to get up the stairs, he moved one of our smaller couches over to the bottom of the stairs and sat behind it kind of like this. So he's up on it and he's shooting up at me, right? And, and he even, I don't know where he got this strength. He's only like 12 at this point, I think. And he's like lifting this, this couch up the stairs. Like it's like halfway up the stairs and he's like moving up on me. He's like moving up on me, right? I'm holding him off. I'm holding him off though. I'm, I, I, he's not getting anywhere close on me. Well, at some point, I think I hit him in like the eye or something, so we had to stop. And that was about lunchtime, about one o'clock, and we were like, you know what? 
We still got like five hours till dad's going to get home. What should we do now? No. We decided it'd be smart to make a music video. So we turned the webcam on on the computer, put some song on. I don't know what it was. Actually, I do. It was You're a Jerk. And we were just, we're up there, we're dancing, right? And in the middle of this video, I kid you not, we hear Chris, Austin, to which... <laughs> and it's, it's, it is rough. So, so, so my dad's home. Got home three hours early. So we come downstairs and, and, and he sees us. And not only does he see the house not cleaned, but he also sees it in a battle formation zone type thing. And he's just, he's livid, livid. So he starts yelling, right? And he's, and you older people, you older siblings know, he yells at you. They yell at you first. You're supposed to be the leader and, and your brother's going to follow your example. And if you're doing this, this is your fault, man. Just going on and on and on. You're not going to have your phone. You're not going to hang out with your friends. Just giving me the list of punishments. And this whole time I'm just taking, I'm just, I'm just like this, right? Well, my brother this whole time is just standing off to the side, very quietly, just like this, head down. And my dad goes, and Austin, what do you have to say for yourself? And I kid you not, my little brother looks up and goes, and just throws up everywhere. <laughs> I'm not even joking with you. He throws up everywhere. Now, my dad, like, how do you continue to be mad when that happens? My dad just went, <laughs> he just stormed off. Needless to say, neither one of us got punished for that incident. But like, that's the deal. Like, when you have a sibling, if you have siblings, you, ha you know things about them that no one else knows. Like, my little brother doesn't post on Instagram, TBT, when I, the time I threw up when my dad was yelling. I mean, he doesn't, like, no one knows that story. I do. I was there. We know, we know all the little, little things about our, our siblings, the deep, dark secrets that no one else knows. See, that's true for all of us. And what we need to remember is that this same idea is true for Jesus too. You know, we know that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. And after he was born, Mary and Joseph are husband and wife, so they do husband and wife things. And more kids are made. So, so Jesus, though he is the oldest, he has half brothers and sisters from Mary and Joseph. And we know this from different accounts in the gospels and things like that. And here's the thing. If you look at all these old Christian, uh, Christian creeds, these, these creeds are things that kind of formulated our faith, very important to our Christian faith. They all go something like this. We believe in Jesus Christ, and he was born of the Virgin Mary, and that he suffered and died under Pontius Pilate. But that's about all they talk about. And really, in the Bible, we don't have a, a, lot, of, a, a lot of information about what happened from when Jesus, the time when Jesus was, was young to the time when he was old and he started his ministry. We, we don't have a written account of that. Really, there's not many people who know what happened during that time, except for Jesus' family. And tonight, we're going to be in the book of James. And what we need to know is that James, the author of this book, was actually Jesus' half-brother. He was his little brother. And when we read this book, we need to read it under the framework that James knows something about Jesus that, that maybe we don't. Nothing that's been secretive or that hasn't been revealed to us by God, but just things about his character that he experienced that we haven't experienced. Like the Bible, this claims that Jesus lived a perfect life. If Jesus didn't live a perfect life, James would certainly let him know. I mean, how many of y'all would be the first one to out your siblings if someone was claiming they were perfect? I, my brother is not perfect. He's, the, he's saved now, but, um, but yeah, so 
So we get into James. Okay, so we're going to be in the first chapter tonight. Here's a couple things we need to know about this book. He's writing to a group of uh, a group of churches that have been spread out all over the place. All right. James says in uh, in in the verse one, he's writing to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. So so all these different tribes, all these different churches that are spread out. James is kind of the chief elder of Rome. He's like kind of the chief pastor over all these different sites, kind of like a multi-site church today. He has all these different churches that he's, he's given authority over, and he's writing this letter to them. And here's what he says, right? In verse 19 of chapter one, here's what he says to them. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Okay, so right here, we got to stop. And we've got to note something because if we miss this, we can miss everything that James is saying. If we miss what is being said right here at the beginning of this passage, we could totally misconstrue his entire message from here on out. It's in verse 19. He says this, know this, my beloved brothers. He says, know this, my beloved brothers. So he's referring to brothers, but he refers to them as beloved, which means they are they are loved. Now the question is, who are these people loved by? Are they loved by James? Are they loved by their friends? Who are they loved by? Well, the next word is brothers. Now in the New Testament, when we see the word brothers, it always refers to those who are fellow Christians. So men and women who are fellow Christians. So he says, know this, my beloved brothers. I'm getting married in like, I think six months or something like that. And um, one of the things that I've seen on Pinterest, I have gone on Pinterest. I'm ashamed of it. But Rachel keeps Pinterest on my iPad, so I see it and I go on it. But there's these little signs, right? And it, it'll have maybe pictures of, of the bride. And it'll say the beloved bride, right? And it implies that the bride is loved by someone and the person she's loved by is her husband. Now, what James is saying here, he says, okay, before I go into anything, before we get into the, the, the good, the, the richness that I have for you, you need to know one thing. You are beloved. You are loved and cherished by God. That, that, that's what he starts with here. He said he wants them to know that you are loved. And the same is true for us. When you're reading this, God is speaking to you too. And he, before you get into anything, he says, hey, you're, you're loved, all right? You need to know this. Know this. You are loved. And see, this is crazy because what James does and what God is doing is he's establishing our identity before he tells us what to do. Because you can't know who you are. You, you, I mean, like, you've got to know who you are before you know why you do what you do. You've got to have a reason and an idea of who it is that you are. And that's what James says. He says, hey, uh, you're loved. Do you have any question about who you are? Um, you're loved. Before he says anything else, you're loved. And this is incredible because you could just skim over this and miss this. But it's so crucial to, to this text because this is what separates Christianity from every other false religion, every other false religion, because God's love for us is not predicated on us or what we do. It's predicated completely on himself and who he is. First John 4.10 says, God is 
love. He's the very epitome of love. And the thing we have to realize is that God cannot love you any more than he already does. And he cannot love you any less than he already does. The fullness of his love has already been shown to everybody in this room when Christ went and died on a cross for you. That his love was shown there. Boom. That's where he showed that he loved you. So James is saying, like, know this before anything. You are loved. It's like, imagine if your parents came to you. Caleb, I'm, I'm, I'm your dad. I'm your daddy here. <laughs> Caleb, I might love you. I might. But I'm going to need you to do, here, I got a list. This is actually my sermon, but I'm going to need you to do all these things for me to love you. I might love you, but you need to do all these things before I can love you. I don't want a dad like that. Heck, I don't want to serve a God like that. A God that says, hey, I'll love you and I'll save you if you do all these things. That's what James is saying here. He's establishing that, hey, you're loved simply because God is love. That's what he's saying here. So you can respond now to what I'm about to teach you about how to live, not for God's love, but from God's love. All right. So, so he establishes, okay, you are loved, you are his beloved. But then he gets on to his actual teaching, what he wants to teach the people that he is writing to and teach us. He says in verse 21, he says, therefore, since you know that God loves you, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. So there's a, there's a kind of a parallel here. God's love for you is a gift. And then also now, James is explaining his word for you is a gift. Um, the crazy thing about this, though, is that James gives us a picture of how it is that God's word, how God intends for his word to work within us and to change us. How many of y'all, when you were, I mean, maybe y'all do this now, but like in middle school, elementary school, uh, probably elementary school, you got like a little cup and you filled it with dirt, and you put a little seed in it, and then you kind of, you measured how, how much stuff grew. Anybody do that, like, in science class when you were, when you were younger? I did. I, I used to do it. I remember how fired up I used to get. Like, you know, I'd put it in there. I'd always, like, you could, you could pick, and, you know, they have, like, flowers, and I'd always pick, like, peas, because I want something I could eat. You know, I didn't like peas. I just want something I could just, oh, I made it. Um, and so, and so, so you fill it, you take this cup, right, and you fill it with, you fill it with dirt, and then you put your seed in it, and then the, the student, you know, I'm now in charge of watering it and tending to it and everything. And so I just remember how fired up I get. Like, I come in one day, like, I end there, I'm like, ah, got a little green sprout, right? And then, and then like, come in a couple other days, and it's like, it's growing. I see a pea. I mean, you're just getting fired up. Well, I mean, you probably didn't, but I did, right? And this is the imagery that, that God uses and that James, God uses through James here to to show us how it is that God uses his word to grow us, right? It says that he, it's the what word? What does it say? The implanted word. Here's the cool thing. Um, God, as the gardener, plants the word inside of us. He, he literally wants to plant his word into me and into you. Now, the kicker, though, is, is right here. It says, 
that we need to receive this with meekness. Now, meekness is a fancy, word, a fancy way to say humility. We need to receive God's word with humility. Um, about six months ago, I, uh, I kind of found myself just feeling distant from God. And y'all just ever, I mean, get that way, you feel kind of distant from God. And I couldn't figure out why. Um, I, I, I mean, it wasn't like I was not reading the Bible. It wasn't like I was not praying or worshiping. I mean, I just, I couldn't figure out why I felt so far away from God. And I was praying one night and I was like, God, like, why do I feel distant from you? Like, you didn't go anywhere. God didn't go anywhere. So there's obviously something that I've done now to, to walk away from you in some way, shape, or form. God, wh- where are you? Why do I feel this way? And I remember God just kind of revealing to me this, this really, this sin that had been in my life. You see, I've read, I mean, I've read the whole Bible. I, I take classes on, on the Bible. So I kind of started approaching my time with God as just something that I needed to do just to do it. Or even... I needed to do it just so I could find things to talk to other people about and to teach other people about in the Bible. I thought, hey, I know everything. I've read all these books and I've, and I, I, I've read the whole Bible and I basically know the whole message. So there's nothing really new that I'm going to get from this. And, and, and see, it's like God revealed to me like, ah, oh, you're, you're a selfish brat. It really is what it was. And so I realized that when I approach God's word, that he's implanted inside me. When I approach it, and I approach it with the idea that I already have everything in control and I already know everything and really don't need anything more from God, I mean, it's just like reading any other book. And, and I've changed how I spend my time with God now. And now, before I spend time with God, before you know, I open my Bible and I sit, I sit at my desk and I just, I just say, I say, God, I'm... I'm just so, I'm broken, and I need you to speak to me so badly. That's, I mean, that's it. I just, I just ask God to do that because I want to receive his word with humility, right? The gardener is going to put the seed inside of me. He's going to water, but the, that soil, that soil can be hard soil. It can be rough soil, and I don't want to be rough soil. I want to be mendable. I want to be soil that can be cultivated easily, and that's what he's saying to us. He's saying, hey, this word that you're going to receive, and you need to receive it with humility, with meekness. But why receive the word? Why receive God's word? What is the, what's the point of receiving God's word? And the answer lies at the end of that verse. It says, you receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. That's why we receive God's word, because God's word is able to save our souls. And God's word is another way of saying God's gospel. And the gospel has the ability to save each and every one of us. The, uh, the Apostle Paul, in his uh, letter to the Romans, Romans is, is kind of like, it's kind of laid out. Romans' book is, is very rich and deep with a lot of theological stuff and truth in it. And at the beginning of it, before Paul gets into anything, before Paul gets into any teaching about man and sin and salvation, anything like that, he says this, and you've probably heard of it. In Romans 1.16, he says, "'For I am unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ.'" for it is the power of salvation for all those who believe. Paul says, but hey, before you read any of this, like before you read anything that I've written in here, know this, this gospel that I'm speaking of, it has the power to save anyone that believes in it. Anyone that believes can be saved by this truth. 
See, God's word gives us life. Without God's word, we don't understand the cosmic error we've we've committed against God. We don't understand that, that God is a God of righteousness and holiness, and he demands that we reciprocate that and that we bring him glory. But see, us, I mean, we're we're human, and so we, you know, think that no, we don't want God. We want the things that God created. So we exchange the truth for God is a lie and worship the creation rather than the creator. And that's sin. That's, that has screwed us up in standing with God. And it, we have condemnation waiting for us. Like we deserve to be punished. But the glorious news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came here and he met the, the, the requirement that we needed to meet. The righteous requirement that God demanded, he met it. And then the, the condemnation, the, the wrath that we deserve he met that too by dying for us on the cross and having God pour his wrath out for us on the cross. And so all of this, all of this is God's word. And without it, you cannot be saved. If you do not hear God's word, all hope is lost. And that's what James is trying to say. He's like, hey, get this, get this word. God's gonna implant it inside of you. Receive it with humility because it's the power to save you. But see, knowing God's word is one thing. But as James goes on to say, that's not the whole picture that we need to get from this. He says in verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once he forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Let me, let me illustrate this. It's kind of convoluted. That, that, I'm only going to illustrate this by this. Let me tell you like a hypothetical situational story, okay? So um, I, you know, I'm from Florida, as I've told you all many times before. And over summers, when I was in high school in Florida, we used to go to uh, Disney World, you know, quite often. You know, we had passes, and so we'd go over to Orlando, go over to Disney World. And normally, you know, once every couple months, we would take a weekend, and we'd spend the whole weekend over in Orlando. So let me just paint for you this hypothetical picture to, to, to display what James is, is teaching us here. Let's say, you know, one morning my dad wakes up, and he wakes up, he's like, yeah, I'm going to take the kids, I'm going to take the family to Disney World. I'm going to take them to Disney World this, this weekend. It's a Friday morning, he wakes up, he's in a chipper mood. And so, you know, he gets ready, and, and he goes outside. And he notices when he walks outside that our grass is super high, super high. It hasn't been cut in a couple weeks. And he also remembers that there's rain coming later on in Tampa that's going to grow our grass even greater. And if we leave and go to Orlando for the weekend, heck, when we get back, there's no way we're going to be able to clean. We're going to be able to cut this grass with our push mower. So he comes inside. It's early. He's going to work. And so he writes me and my brother a letter. This is what he says. He says, to my beloved sons, I love you so much. You're the best sons in the whole wide world. There's nothing more in this life that I love than you. Remember how much I love you because last week I took you all to get ice cream. Now, the grass is high very high. You two need to cut the grass. Go upstairs, put on your old shoes, put on your old, your old shirt and your old pants, go outside, turn the lawnmower on, take the lawnmower, pull the little lever down, and mow the grass. Also, 
weed also, edge and weed whack. Sincerely, your loving father. Okay, so day goes on, he goes to work, he comes home, pulls into the driveway and notices that the grass has not been cut. It's still just as high as it was earlier. So he comes inside and he says, Chris Austin, come downstairs. Come downstairs. Did y'all get my letter that I uh, left for you this morning? Dad, do we get your, yes, we got your letter. And can I just say, exquisite. The word choice, pristine, dad. And, 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 and better yet, the flow of your argument in it, oh, beautiful. And see, dad, you need to know that our love for this letter, we, liked, we loved it so much, dad, that we went out and got a bunch of friends and started a small group where we could learn more about cutting grass. And dad, we researched ancient grass cutting techniques. Like dad, did you know that you can hire goats to cut your grass for you? It's real. <laughs> and dad, furthermore, you need to know this dad, because I'm speaking this with all sincerity. We've come up with a strategy to implement the gospel in how we cut grass. It's gonna be great. And you know what? Austin even had this great idea. We could start a ministry. We can start a ministry. We're going to call it Mowers for Christ. He sows it, we mows it. It's going to be great. And so, and, and I think, and here's where we're stuck. We actually, we need to figure out an ad. We need to figure out like an ad campaign. Actually, do we have that graphic we could throw up there? Yeah, I think this is going to be our, our official graphic that we'll make business cards with it, have our information on the back, have a website and a Twitter handle, everything like that, dad. It's going to be awesome, dad. I'm telling you, thank you for that letter. My love for grass cutting is so much greater than it was before. My dad's gonna sit there. Okay, so did you cut the grass? Oh, we forgot to cut the grass. We were too busy studying what you said to us. That's a, that's a, that's a, a dumb analogy. But I feel like that's often what we do in regards to God's word that he's given us. You see, there's a disconnect, I think, with a lot of us where we know a lot about God's word. We know a lot about what he said to us, but then we don't do it. And, you know, I'm not saying that studying is bad. I'm not saying that studying the word of God is bad. I encourage that. I encourage that you do that. But if all you ever do is study and you never apply... Well, it's all in vain. I mean, that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians that God chose what is, was foolish in the world, what was foolish to men, to make wise, because Christ himself is the epitome of wisdom, and that following him is going gonna, is gonna to result in a life that overflows with wisdom. So this is, what, this is what James is so frustrated with here. See, he's an old man. He's an old man who's the pastor of this, this large network of churches. And his large network of churches is full of a bunch of religious people. And they know a lot, but they're not doing a lot. And see, he's frustrated because his big brother, Jesus, wasn't like that. His big brother, Jesus, knew a lot and he did a lot. He, he, he worked in this world. He encouraged people in this world. He prayed for people. He healed people. He, he went, he, heck, he died for people. His big brother did 
what he taught. And, and that's why James is so frustrated here. Because he knows that in Christianity, we follow the footsteps of Jesus. That's, that's, that's the whole premise of Christianity. We, we, we follow the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus laid out for us the life, and we follow that. We follow his life and his teachings. And see, he creates this, he, he, he gives us this analogy of what this is like. He says, how many, how many of y'all have looked in a mirror today? Anybody looked in a mirror today at all? Anybody? Girls, how many of y'all carry mirrors with you no matter where you go? Really? Wow, I was expecting a lot more girls to carry mirrors. How many guys? You do? I'm just kidding. I was going to say, we're going to start doing some discipleship soon. Um, but no, so he gives, us, he gives this analogy, right? He gives this analogy where he says, okay, so this is what it's like. For you to hear God's word and then not do it, it's like this. It's like you see a mirror. Here's a mirror. Hey, mirror. You look in it. Okay. That's what I look like. And you walk away. Well, someone comes to you and says, hey, man, what do you look like? You know what? I just don't know. I mean, I looked at myself just saying, but I don't know. I don't know what I look like. Well, if we showed you, can we show you a picture of what you look like? Yeah, let's do that. Nope. I think, nope, that's Brian. Um, I don't know what I look like. That's stupid. I mean, no one's going to not know what they look like after looking into a mirror. But that's what James is saying is that when, when we live a life where we simply hear God's word, but we don't do God's word, it's like we're looking into a mirror and we walk away and we forget what we look like. I mean, think about this. Ask yourself this. How many times do we read our Bible or we sit, in the, we sit through a sermon and then we get up, we walk away, and say, hey, what was that about? Oh, I don't know. Hey, what'd you read about today? What'd you read in the Bible today? You know, I'd read it, but I don't really remember what it was. We forget what it is that God has said to us about himself. We forget what it is that God has said to us about us. And see, if we do this, we're living a life that is disconnected from how God intended for us to live. See, he doesn't just want us to hear his word. He doesn't just want us to receive his word. He wants us to do his word. He doesn't want us, like me, to just go and study how to cut grass, talk about how to cut grass, start a small group on how to cut grass. He wants me to go cut my stinking grass. Let me, let me show you all, let me show you all this, this, this idea in a passage in the Bible. Matthew 28, 20. Some of y'all could probably recite it to me right now. It says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See, in this passage, Jesus gives us two commands, gives his apostles two commands. First command is go start a church. No, it's not. The first command he gives his disciples is what? Go make disciples. Like, this is the last thing Jesus says before he goes into heaven. So it's pretty important. He says, go make disciples. Go. And in the Greek, the, the word, the tense there that you use, it's an active tense. So it literally means as you are going, make disciples. So as you are doing life, as you are living life and going about playing sports and going to school, make disciples. Do we make disciples? 
mean, just, just, just let, let's ask ourselves that. Do we make disciples? Because this isn't a suggestion. It's not a, hey, when you become a certain age, go make disciples. When you have a certain amount of education, go make disciples. When you've read the whole Bible, go make disciples. Hey, start a small group about how to make disciples. No, 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 no. As you're going, make disciples. Am I doing that? Are you doing that? Because it's a command that God has given us to do. And I think that we can sometimes look at the commands of the Bible and much like the mirror, we can see it and then walk away and forget that it's even a command to us. God tells us to go and make disciples. Now, what does it mean to make disciples? What is discipleship at all? This is it really simply, this is discipleship. Discipleship is the modeling and teaching of the gospel. That's discipleship. So let's ask ourselves, do we model the gospel? Do we model a life that is abundant in love, sacrificial love? Do, do we live a life that is abundant in joy? Do we live a life in which we don't discriminate, in which we don't, <clears throat> we don't see others as lower than us, but we see ourselves all in equal playing field because we recognize we are sinners? Do we model the gospel? Not that, not that we know what the Bible says. We might know that, that God says, hey, by our love, they're going to know us of his disciples of Christ, but we might be a pretty big jerk to a lot of people. So do we model the gospel one? But then the second one is, do we teach the gospel? And see, I think this is something that, that church, churches all over America have gotten wrong for a while. It's this idea that I have to be a pastor or a small group leader or on staff at a church for me to make disciples, for me to be the one who's teaching the gospel and teaching the Bible to people. And you see, that doesn't align with what the Bible teaches because in Ephesians 4.12, it says that the, the job of a minister of a, or of a, of a pastor is to equip his flock to be ministers themselves. So you see, church is not a place where we come just to get, 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 and get fed and, and to have all the stuff that we absorb and everything, but it's a place where we come to be, cut, be equipped to go off and then make disciples ourselves. See, that, that's what Jesus is telling us to do. And if we're not doing this, then we're not living in obedience to, to God's word. We're not doing what it is that God has told us to do. It's real simple. Think of it this way. Think in your mind of two people that you know that you could intentionally meet with and talk about God and, and disciple. Just think, think of the thing in your head, two people maybe younger than you, maybe your same age, but you know, are newer to, to Christianity than you are. Think of those two people. Now imagine this. Let's say you, you, you committed to meeting with those two people, let's say just once a week where you, you can meet and you can talk about God's word and talk about his gospel and hold each other accountable. And then from there, those two people then got two more people that they did that with. And then those two people got two more people that they did that with. And in the span of a couple months, there's 15 people that are being discipled because of your one decision to pour into two people. It's called multiplication. That's how God intended for his church to grow. That's how the church grew in Acts, by discipleship. So he tells us, go and make disciples. Next part is this, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The first command of obedience that God has given us 
after we receive Christ and receive his sacrifice for us, is baptism. And if you have given your life to Jesus, if you have trusted in his perfect death or perfect worth work in, uh, on this earth and atoning death for you, if you trusted in that, put your faith in him, the first act of public obedience is not you getting up and reading scripture at school. It's not you going and asking if you can pray for someone. It's not you saying no and taking a stand for something. It's you being baptized. Look at the book of Acts. As soon as people, as soon as people profess their faith, boom, all right, there's some water there. All right, let's go. Let's baptize them. That's Acts 8. What can withhold? Where can we withhold water for baptism? And see, if you've given your life to Jesus and you haven't been baptized, you're not obeying the first command that God gave you of your salvation. And next week, we're having a baptism service. The whole service is going to be dedicated to celebrating Christ's work in us by baptism. We're going to publicly profess that we have given our lives to Jesus and that he now reigns in us and that, hey, I don't align with this world anymore, but I align with Christ. See, this is just a simple passage where God has given us a command, but I think a lot of us fall short and a lot of us, we don't take the commands as seriously as Christ took them when he gave them to us. Now, that's a, that's a lot of information for, for one night. I understand that. <clears throat> um, but let me, let, me, this, let me just close, and the bank can come on back up if they want. Let me just close with, with an illustration to kind, of, to kind of just draw this whole thing full circle. Um, when I was in high school, <clears throat> there's this park down in Florida called Bush Gardens. And they used to do this thing over summer where they would open up their park after hours at night so you could go and you could and you could you know hang out at night. It was really cool. And they called it Bush Garden Summer Nights. Well, one day, you know, I, I wanted to go with my friends. And I said, I woke up and said, Hey Dad, could I go to Bush Gardens tonight? And you see, me asking my dad if I could go to Bush Gardens was kind of twofold. Not only did I need his permission, but I needed his money because I was broke and didn't have a job. And I needed his car because I didn't have a car. So I was basically like, Dad, can you provide for me to go to Bush Gardens? He said, Yeah. You can go, but under one thing, I'm going to need for you, Chris, to clean out the garage. It's a mess. I'm going to need you to clean this whole garage up. Okay. All right. That's fine. Well, <clears throat> the day went on and, you know, I, I kind of got sidetracked with some stuff. And before I knew it, I had to head to cross-country practice and, and I had forgotten to clean the garage. Now, I, this has totally slipped my mind. So I went to practice not thinking anything, getting excited that I get to go to Bush Gardens with my friends. I come home. And I see that our garage is spotless. It's perfectly clean. And I was like, dang it. I let my dad down. I forgot to clean the garage. And walk inside. My dad's sitting at the kitchen table and I say, hey, dad, I'm sorry. I completely forgot to clean the garage. I'm sorry. I know you told me that's what I needed to do. That's what had to be done for me to go to Bush Gardens. I'm sorry. I didn't do it. Um, I understand. I won't go to Bush Gardens. I'll just kind of, I'll just hang out here tonight. Now, I expected my dad to say, yeah, you know, that's true. It's all right. I forgive you. You know, go to bed. But this is how he responded. He said, yeah, uh, that, that was what was required of you. That's, that's what I wanted from you to be able to go to Bush Gardens. And you didn't do it. But, but I did it for you. And you see, my, that requirement's still there, but, you know, I'm just going to count me doing it for you. 
My work here is going to count for you. And yeah, you can go to Bush Gardens. And yes, I'll give you money to go to Bush Gardens. Yes, I'll give you a car so you can drive to Bush Gardens. But you need to be home by 11. So not only did my dad, my dad's work, count for me, but he then equipped me and empowered me to be able to go to have fun with my friends. He gave me money. He gave me a car. He gave me permission to go. Now, he told me, though, to be home at 11. And normally I would fight that. Normally I would try to, you know, squeeze in there 15 minutes late. But no, 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 not this time. Because my dad's act of love for me compelled me to obey him. That's what this entire concept is. If you hear nothing else tonight, please hear this. God did for you what you could not do for yourself. And what he did counts for you. And furthermore, upon accepting this gift that he's given you, this substitutionary gift that he's given you, God now empowers you to live a life where you can not only obey him, but you can also share what he's done for you with everybody that you know. This is the gospel. That's all that this is. It's God doing what you can't do. It's God saving you. And then from that act, from that act of love, you now are motivated to obey from his love. Not for it, but from it. We need to be people who not only hear God's word, but do God's word. Because he loves us so much. And it's the least that we can do to reply back to him. Let's pray. God, you, you have so much to say to us. <clears throat> you have so much to say, God. We have such little time. God, I just pray that above everything else, your love would be known tonight. <clears throat> that, God, your gift of salvation would be known tonight. Because, God, the reality is, is that there quite possibly are people in this room that have heard this truth before, have heard your word before, but have never responded to the command you gave them to repent. They've never responded to the command you gave them to quit living in their sin, to turn from that, <clears throat> and to trust in what you have done. God, there's people here that have heard your word and have professed you as Lord but God, they're not obeying the simple commands that you've given them, whether it be discipleship or baptism or whatever. And God, tonight, I, above everything else, God, just ask, God, I plead with you that you would soften hearts tonight to understand the weight behind your commands, God. To understand, God, that you have empowered us to go into this world and to make disciples. God, you're so great and you're so good. And Christ, you are glorified above everything else. And it is only through you that we can 
praise you and approach your throne. God, I love you. And I thank you.